Hi, I'm lead pastor, Noel Peepgrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. college who told us that he um, he never wanted to insult our intelligence with easy tests. He, this is what he said. I, I never want to insult your intelligence by giving you an easy test. I was like, man. And so he never gave us like the answers. Like, you know, he never gave us a study guide or anything like that. Anyways, I'm not like that guy. I want to give you the answers so you can follow along. Uh, there's seven things that I want to take out of this passage. If you have uh, your Bible on a phone, you're totally welcome to have your phone out. So that, that's fine. If you have a real Bible, you can follow along with me. We're going to go verse by verse, basically, uh, through this section of, uh, of Matthew. We're in a section of Matthew um, that's known as Jesus' Sermon on Mission. So we, this is now the second famous sermon that we've studied in the book of Matthew. The first was the Sermon on the Mount, which is the famous, most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, so Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. He, he talked about his kingdom ways, the philosophies of his kingdom. And then he comes down the mountain and he starts healing people and doing all these miraculous things. That's chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew. And, and so now in chapter 10, Jesus is sending his disciples on mission. He's basically saying, now go do what I've been doing. He trained them up by teaching. He trained them up by touching the people that came around him. And now he's sending them. And so these last four messages have been a mission manual of sorts, instructions for how to be on mission with Jesus. So we, we started with some sources of mission, right? The things that fuel uh, the mission of Jesus. And then uh, David Jansen, a friend of mine, came and talked about Jesus' travel instructions uh, to his disciples. Last week, I gave you the hard news that there's troubles when you're on mission with Jesus, that life is not all perfect when you're on mission with Jesus. And in fact, that's not even the plan. The plan is for troubles to be used to further the mission of Jesus. And so Jesus does not promise us a life free of trouble. Today, we're going to talk about this, this last section of Matthew 10. And I have good news. The good news today is that you can trust Jesus on mission with him. Even though there'll be troubles, you can trust him. That's the good news today. So... This morning, um, I'm actually, I, w- I was pretty excited. Believe it or not, I'm not always excited about preaching from a particular text. Like last week, not excited. It took a lot of prayer for me to get up here and tell you how bad your life is going to go when you get on mission with Jesus. You know, I think I told you, it's like, you know, that's like not a, a good church planning passage. You know, hey, come join our church. We're going to go on mission and everything's going to go really bad. <laughs> Anyway, that was a hard sermon, but it it did feel like, you know, the promise in that passage is that when you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit will show up. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, and it felt like last week, that's what happened. It felt like the Holy Spirit showed up. It felt like there was, like, some cracking in our hearts, and a a new deposit was made. Super exciting. I left um, last week more excited um, than maybe ever, Um, and so, yeah, I really like you guys. It's good to be with you guys, and uh, I'm excited to, uh, to talk about how we can trust 
our Heavenly Father this morning. But, uh, but Jesus, he's going to come after. The reason I was excited also about this passage is he's going to come after some of our most sacred idols in this passage. Some of the things that are most near and dear to our hearts, Jesus is coming after them today. If you've, uh, if you've followed Jesus for any time, read the Bible for any time, you know that uh, Jesus is very loving, but he's very challenging, incredibly challenging. The bar of grace is incredibly high. Jesus sets the bar. His grace for us is incredibly high. But man, the standards that he calls us to are so high, so high that we need grace to be this high in order to get over the bar that he set for us. You can't do it without grace. So here we have, like, I haven't met many people like this. You have, like, the lenient teacher, right, the good cop, the bad cop. Jesus is both. He's the hard cop, and he's the, like, loving cop. He's the mom and the dad. Don't get that twisted. That might have been a bad analogy. You, and now we talked, this was last week, too. All metaphors and analogies fail at some point, right? Anyways, okay, I'm going to get into the word because we're getting off course here. So the first thing you got to know when you're on mission with Jesus is that uh, you, you should expect troubles, right? So Jesus starts this little section in verse 24 and 25 um, by saying that something that sounds complicated, that's not really complicated. Verse 24, the student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So here's the thing, you guys. What this passage is saying is that we shouldn't expect better treatment than Jesus got. The person that we follow, that we've, we commit our lives to, Jesus, he, uh, it didn't end well for Jesus, did it? Well, put it this way, it ended well, but it, it, it got bad. It got really rocky at one point, right? We follow a man who took himself to the cross for us. So we shouldn't expect that things will go better for us when we're on mission and they went for Jesus. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples here. And one of the challenges before the American church, which that's us, is that we, we expect to be able to live the American dream. There's a way in which we've kind of like made that like something that we're owed, the American dream, right? We've caught the lie that if we give ourselves to God, everything will go well in our lives. You know, if we're honest, do good, get good. That's something that's easy for us to believe. But it's just not true. It's not true. It's not true experientially. It's not true. Because I know I've had hard things that have happened to me, even when I was following Jesus. Now, now, I've had hard things happen to me that were my own darn fault, too. I'm not blaming God for those things. But sometimes, even when you follow Jesus with all your heart, hard things happen. Right? People die. Businesses fail. You know, relationships break down. So we can't, we can't just uh, think that the American dream is Jesus' dream for us. It's just not true. And as we learned last week, there's going to be trouble when we're on mission with Jesus. But remember, right, this is what we said in that last passage. It's all part of the plan. God is not surprised by the troubles that we face. The troubles are part of the plan, right? Last week we learned the troubles that the disciples were going to encounter, being brought before the council, arrested, beaten, those are all going to bring new opportunities to tell people about Jesus. So even in Jesus' ways, even the hard things, even the things that look like disaster, even the things that look like failure, i.e. the cross, end up being powerful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus. So it's all part of the plan. He's not caught by surprise. He's going to use every affliction to spread the good news. The second thing we see in this passage is that we need to preach the gospel boldly. 
preach the gospel boldly. Uh, verse 26, I think, is the first use of the phrase, do not be afraid, but you're going to hear it several times. This is one of the more common things that Jesus said. He knew, he knew that we would need courage to face the troubles that would come, right? So he says, do not be afraid of them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid. Jesus knew that fear of man is one of the idols in our hearts. One of the things that can get in the way of being bold. Anyone ever been scared to say, I don't know, something about Jesus? Maybe witness to a friend? Anyone had a little bit of fear? I have. I'll be honest. I, I have. I would imagine that, that some of you had as well. So Jesus says, do not be afraid. It's our responsibility to preach the gospel boldly. And you're like, I'm not a preacher. What are you talking about? Well, that's not what he's talking about. What are the opportunities that Jesus has given you, that God's given you, to talk about him to a friend? What are the opportunities? I know, like, I'm going to highlight Noah again. Noah's the best at talking to people in his doctor's office. If someone comes to this church and they told me Noah introduced them, it's always people. I don't know what you do. Is your first question like, hi, I'm Noah. What are your symptoms? Where do you go to church? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, Noah would probably never say that he's a preacher. But you see what I'm saying? He's on mission with Jesus, and so he's taking these opportunities. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm crying thinking about you, Noah. Dang it. Two weeks in a row, I cried during this sermon. So don't get scared off by the language to preach the gospel. And what's the gospel? It's just the good news about Jesus. This is good news that you had a problem with God because of your sin, a problem that you could not outrun. But God had a plan to fix your problem to fix my problem, and he sent his son Jesus to make a way to be reconciled before God when there was no way to be reconciled because of our sin. So instead of getting the death that we deserve to get in Jesus, we get the life that we could never earn. We get freedom. This is the good news. The news that, that God had a plan to make us right with him despite our sin. So we got to preach the gospel boldly you know, I've had friends in the past that have told me, my faith is just really personal to me. It's just really personal to me, you know. I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be praying or like talking out loud. It's just really personal to me. And I get it. It is really personal, right? It's really intimate. It is deep. But Jesus commands us. He commands his disciples to tell people about him. If you love somebody else, I was listening. Uh, what's the name of the, uh, the guys that do the... Uh, Teller and Penn? Is that, are those comedians? Teller, Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller, thank you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, one of them, the bigger guy, long hair. There's a video you can find on the internet. He says, listen, uh, he's, he's an atheist. But he says, he's like, I have no problem with someone coming up to me and witnessing to me. And he says that the reason he has no problem with that is because if you really believe, like we believe as Christians, that there's eternity on the line, you should say something to people about it. What kind of hatred would you have to have in your soul to not tell somebody about what's ahead? So we're all on the line, you guys. Like, it's, a, it's a part of being a disciple of Jesus is that we proclaim the good news. And it's not even so much out of duty, it's out of love. Remember what Jesus came saying. He didn't, he didn't say first and foremost, and we know he's loving, right? Jesus is love. We know he's loving. 
But the first thing he said is repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And so it's loving to tell somebody the good news about Jesus. And so it's not just a personal thing, you guys. Christians on mission with Jesus are to boldly preach the gospel. And you don't have to get a sermon. You don't have to give a sermon to preach the gospel. But you do need to talk about him. You also need to be about him. Too many Christians have just talked about him and not been about the lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lifestyle for sure. So there's a way of preaching that has nothing to do with words. And then there's a way of preaching that has to do with your words. So what does he preach? Uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of like a little bit more, um, like you have to search for it a little bit. He says, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. This is one of the reasons that we preach the Bible every Sunday. We, uh, like, topical sermons aren't evil in, in and of themselves. I'm not calling them evil. Maybe sometimes someone will come up here and give a testimony of their faith. That's all good and well. But most every Sunday, we're going to open the word of God, and we're going to proclaim it, right? And uh, we, we think it's really important to, uh, to not just, like, pick and choose what we talk about in God's word. We think it's really important to submit ourselves to the whole counsel of Scripture. And, you know, sometimes we can be afraid, like I was last week, of what a particular passage might say. But we, we can't just skip it. We want to preach the whole counsel of God's word. We preach everything, right? And this is what we do. We don't keep anything in the dark. We don't keep anything in whispers. We have to be bold. This is why, again, we're not skipping the hard passages or the passages that you may not like. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped. So we come to the scriptures so that we might be thoroughly equipped. This is part of what it means to preach the gospel boldly. <clears throat> Next one, number three. We need to fear God and not man. Fear God and not man. It says in verse 28, again, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's the one? The one is our Father in heaven, right? So notice the juxtaposition. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Do not be afraid of other men, other people. Do not be afraid of human beings. But there is one to be afraid of, and that's our Father in heaven. See, man can't touch the most important part of you, your soul. I was thinking about that, uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's like, it's true about souls, right? No human being can take your soul. If someone here on earth is mean to you or mad at you or doesn't like you because of Jesus, they can hurt your body, but they can't take your soul. Our soul is, is in the responsibility of our Heavenly Father. So it doesn't say to not be afraid. It says instead, fear God and God alone. He's the one that will one day stand in eternal judgment over our eternal souls. So don't be afraid of men. Rather, fear God. Notice in Scripture, we're never told in Scripture to fear Satan. We're never told in Scripture to be afraid of the evil one. But we are told to fear God. 
That's interesting language, right? It says in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we got to get our minds around what does this fear mean, right? Um, and I, I like our dogs have these shock collars and then there's like a boundary wire like, you know, and, and if they get too close, it like shocks them. You know, this is our way of protecting them. You know what I'm saying? And my dogs were kind of unruly. I'm not a dog trainer, so I, I was, you know, I've not, some people are just like tell their dog, don't go there, and then the dog never goes there again. That wasn't me. Um, so we put these collars on our dogs, and uh, the very first time I put uh, the collar on my dog, Lonzo, he, he got shocked one time, and that was all it took. And you know what, so now he knows the boundaries, right? Because he's, he's kind of, he's afraid of getting shocked. But you know what else happened? He started to mind me a lot better. Now I don't have to drag him into his kennel at night. I tell him to go to the kennel, right? And you've heard that phrase, he's, the fear of God has been put into him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so fear, fear like can work in this way where there's, there's some positive uh, outcomes, right? Now God isn't zapping us. I again, the metaphor fails, but you get the idea, right? There's a right way to fear God, to mind what he has to say to us, to respect, to have reverence. <clears throat> 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15 says this, he who does not fear God fears everything. So there's our choice. Fear God or fear everything. If you're living in fear, I wonder if a good prescription might be a right fear of God. Augustine said, uh, uh, said this, let us fear therefore that we may not fear. Let us fear therefore that we may not fear. Let us fear God is what Augustine's saying, so that we won't have fear. It's a really powerful point. Fear God rather than human beings. Man, I know I'm, I'm particularly prone to fear what people think about me, to, to fear what people will say about me, what people might do to me. I'm really prone to the fear of man. And Jesus says you've got to have your fears rightly organized. Fear God, not man. The second piece, or the next piece, I'm sorry, I think it's the fourth, I'm, I'm, my list is long. Trust your heavenly father is the next piece, the next command in this passage. Verse 29, and I think it connects to why we're to fear God. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even when, the, I'm sorry, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. Again, you heard it, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. See, this God of eternal judgment can be trusted to care for you. He cares even for comparably insignificant creation, uh, creations like sparrows, right? Or the hair on your head, which some of you have. So he says, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Again, he says, don't be afraid. You can trust me. See, I take care of these sparrows. Jesus cares for even the insignificant creatures in this world, but none so much as he cares for us. So large is God that even the death of a sparrow is noticed. You know, sometimes I trick myself into thinking, ah, God doesn't care about these little things. He does care about those little things. And he cares for you even more than he cares for the little things. Our God is so big, he, can, he has capacity for a lot of care. It's really amazing. He's got capacity for a lot of care. He could, you know, we were praying this morning and I was just thinking to myself, I wonder how many burdens are being cast upon the Lord right now in this small little church right here. How many burdens are being cast upon the Lord right now? The Lord actually asked us to cast our burdens on him. 
He's got huge capacity to care for us. The God of the Bible, he's just so large, you guys. He cares for all the little things, and he cares for us. Also, you got to notice this about God. This is, you know, I said the, the shot caller analogy. It falls apart, right? It falls apart right here. God's not a, a cosmic cop. He's a faithful father. He cares about the sparrows, and, and, and all the more, he cares about us. He can be trusted to care for us because he cares for us intimately. He's like the best dad you could have ever had. That's what God is like. And I know sometimes some of us are like, oh, my dad, I don't know if I want God to be like my dad. But no, he's like the perfect dad. If you could imagine all the, all the longings in your heart that you had for your dad, that's who God is. That's the father that he is. He cares for us. When, uh, when I had this moment in my life where I, like, I, I was like mid-30s and I was still like... Uh, trying to answer the question, like, what am I going to be when I grow up? And um, it, like, led me to prayer, because Megan told me I needed to give the Lord no rest until I'd heard from him. And uh, it, it actually related to this idea of leading a church, and um, I just wasn't sure if God really wanted to do that with my life. Um, and uh, one day I was driving home, uh, praying in the car, and I really sensed the Lord specifically call me, confirm the call to, like, pastor in the church and to step out of my coaching career and to step into a career in ministry and I was like uh, not sure that I could do what he was asking me to do I had like I remember like so quickly giving him a list of reasons why I could not do uh, the things that he was asking me to do and uh, he interrupted my thoughts that night and he said uh, don't worry I've got this you can trust me I thought of that uh, as I was preparing for this sermon. Man, he's so trustworthy, you guys. He's so trustworthy. Even when things get scary, we can trust in the care of our Heavenly Father. The next thing Jesus tells us to do, verse 32, 33, it says to acknowledge him. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. This is where it gets real. It gets, like, super real, you know? We've been talking about this, like, how uh, our response to Jesus is really important. Our response to Jesus is really important because our justification, like, our being made right before God, it depends upon the reality of our relationship to Jesus. Our justification depends upon the reality of our relationship to Jesus. Remember, he said there will be those who in the last days say, like, I did this for you, I did that for you, and he, he will say, Away from me. Depart. I never knew you. Our justification depends upon the reality of our relationship to Jesus. The proof of our faith is in the pudding. If you are in Jesus, you will proclaim his gospel. If you're in Jesus, you will proclaim his gospel in word and in deed. There's no option. It's not like, uh, and I want to say this gently because I know like some of you are like, crap, well then I, I don't know. Like maybe I'm not a disciple. I don't know. Hey, it can be scary. It could be hard. Maybe you've been, you know, you don't know how to say it or how to do it. But I want to give you, like, I don't want to, like, slap you and, and, like, shake you. I want to, like, encourage you. Like, no, you can do it. The Spirit, he already told us he'll give you what the words to say. He'll give you the words to say. We were praying with friends just last week. And they have no church background. Uh, they came out of, like, kind of a Catholic background. 
he, he like joined us for prayer. He, he didn't know any prayers. He didn't know how to pray. And guess what? He prayed. And he prayed for me. And it moved my heart. You don't have to have the skills that you think that you have to have. You need to have Jesus. You need to have the Spirit of God living inside of you. He'll give you the words to say. There's no option. If you're a disciple, proclaim the good news. Tell people in love about him. There's no need to keep quiet about what Jesus has done. Verse 34, Jesus, uh, Jesus goes on to say that we should expect relational strife when we're on mission with him. Maybe even family division. This is like, these are hard words right here. So let's read verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm like, wow, I thought he was the prince of peace. What's up with that? So we're going to have to really dig in for a second here. I've come to turn a man against his father. That clock stopped working, so now I've got to look at this clock. A man, he's like, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He says a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And mom, it, it doesn't say anything about a son-in-law being turned against mother-in-law, so we're, we're good on that one right there. He goes on to say, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Man, following Jesus will be at times divisive. It may, it, it'll cause division in every relationship. It may even cause division in your family. I don't know if any of you have a story of coming to Jesus and getting separated or split apart from your family. But imagine being converted out of a Mormon family or a Muslim family or even a Jewish family. Imagine the, uh, these disciples who had decided to follow Jesus. Imagine what they had had to give up in relationship to their families, potentially. These men were on the road with Jesus. They'd probably walked away from some of their families, at least for this time. So this is kind of, you know, these are hard words. Like, Jesus, I thought Jesus loved family. I thought Jesus said, like, honor your father and mother, right? Didn't Jesus say, he's going to say later in Matthew 15 that you're, you should take care of your family. So it can't be that Jesus is saying, like, hate your family, come follow me. It can't be exactly that. And I think if this, if this passage seems confusing, just go to verse 37. It gets more clear in verse 37. It's like Jesus knew the people weren't tracking with him, and so he had to, like, get it a little bit more specific. So after he quotes Micah 7, 6, in verses uh, 35 and 36, he says this, hey, it's like this. Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. So this is the key phrase here, right? We have to love Jesus more than our family. Jesus has priority. He has preeminence. Jesus comes first. Following Jesus is a first thing. It can't be done below anything else. So this is why it can be divisive to follow Jesus. This is why it can cause family strain. I don't know if anyone's had um, family strain as a result of following Jesus, but uh, it could happen, and it was happening to these men. And here's the thing as it comes to relational strife, and the reason that you should expect it is that we know that the road to following Jesus is narrow. We studied in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus said that there will actually be few who take the narrow path. So as we go out on mission with Jesus, we should expect that, that most probably will reject him and his ways. 
Only a few will believe the truth of Christ, I think is what teacher, uh, is what scripture, I'm sorry, teaches. We also have to understand the, the historic uh, consequences of faith have always been persecution. And yes, Jesus came to bring peace, peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? Reconciliation, this is the message of Jesus. But sometimes this message brings as much persecution as it brings reconciliation. See, the reason is because Jesus came to create a new kind of family. A family that when created brings division upon old family lines. It's not that Jesus, again, it's not that he's anti-family. It's that Jesus came to bring about an eternal spiritual family. A family that supersedes our temporal biological families in importance. Would you leave your family to follow Jesus? Would you leave your family to follow Jesus? That's a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand, especially my kids. <laughs> Whoever loves his father or mother more than they love me is not worthy of me. Jesus is just brutally honest about what it takes to be on mission with him. But, but I love this about Jesus. He doesn't trick us. He doesn't say, come follow me. Everything is going to be sweet. He doesn't say, come follow me, and I'm going to give you money and fame and reputation. He tells us straight up, there's going to be a cost if you come and follow me. There'll be life. There will be life, but there is a cost. He tells his disciples plainly, being on mission with Jesus leads to hardships. And it's not that these are just whoopses. They're not mistakes. They're part of his plan. That's what Jesus said. He said that these things are part of his plan to proclaim the gospel, to spread the good news. The hard things get us to the God things. This is the truth in the kingdom of God. See, to Jesus' family is good, but God is greater. And Jesus is getting us to the greater good. Family's good, but God is greater. And I'm, I'm sitting here, listen, Jared's like next to his mama, and I know he loves his mom. Man, God has to be first. And I, I bet your mom would say, you follow Jesus first. I'm not going to look at her. She's maybe crying right now. I don't know if that's happening or not. Man, these are challenging words of Jesus, uh, but it gets even more challenging, you guys. The next verse says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We have to take up our cross in order to follow Jesus. Take up our own cross. I thought he took up the cross. He did. And he calls you and I to also take up our cross, to give up our lives. It says in verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See, the key to being worthy of Jesus is to lay down your entire life for his cause. And I checked in the Greek, and literally, it means your entire life. We have to give up everything. Sorry, I didn't check in the Greek. That was supposed to be a joke. Your entire life, you guys, you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus if you want to be worthy of Jesus. He demands everything. We follow a God who went to the cross to die in our place. This is the type of allegiance that he's calling us to. He doesn't say, like, taking up one's trophy or, like, getting a promotion or moving into the nice neighborhood. This isn't the call of Jesus. It's to take up our cross and follow him. It's following him unto death. And here's the thing, if you don't take up your cross, 
If you hold on to your life, he says you'll actually lose it. Have you ever seen like a, um, a kid like reach their hand into the cookie jar? And you can just get your hand in if you don't make a fist, right? But then you grab the cookie, and in order to come back out, you got to make a tough decision, right? That's where I decided just to break the jar, you know? But this is how it is, right? You got to let go if you want to take hold of life. Otherwise, your hand's going to stay in the cookie jar. You got to let go if you want to truly live. That's what Jesus is saying. In Jesus' economy, it seems like letting go equals taking hold of. You've got to let go in order to hold on in Jesus' economy. This is really backwards, isn't it? The tighter you grip the things in your life, the more true life will slip away from you. This is what Jesus is saying. If you want to take hold of eternal life, you've got to let go of all the things that you think are life in this world. Amen? Amen. Yeah. You've got to let go of your reputation, your friends, your career, your things, the nice house, your car, your comfort, your family, the relationships that are most important to you. You've got to be willing to let go. The tighter you hold on, the more real life will slip away. In Jesus' kingdom way, living for oneself, it doesn't lead to self-preservation. It actually leads to self-destruction. If you live for yourself, go ahead, make yourself the center of your life. And wait and see the destruction that follows. If you make the things of this world your aim, Jesus says, you are not worthy of me. He warns, I think, your life will meet destruction if you make yourself the main thing. You've got to let go. But if instead of holding on, you say no to these things and make service to God your primary devotion, there will be troubles. There will be troubles. But you'll find true life down the narrow road that leads to Jesus. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner is a commentator that I've been reading as we've gone through this. He says the happiest humans are usually those caught up in a cause who have made the cause their aim. And one day, they wake up to realize they're happy. The cause is their aim. Have you ever been around someone so miserable and all they're trying to do is be happy, right? They're, they're going from one pleasure to the next, trying to stack up riches, trying to stack up reputation, trying to stack up friends, relationships. The pursuit of happiness leads to misery. The pursuit of a cause leads to true happiness. True joy. I'm here to tell you that the cause of causes, you guys, the cause of all causes to be attached to is discipleship to Jesus. This is the thing. The narrow road, though it be hard, leads to life. And I would warn you today, if you find yourself on that wide road, get off. Get off. You'll destroy yourself. Do you notice uh, that Jesus requires that we make a choice, you know? If you, if you hang around this Jesus guy for long enough, you'll realize there's no half-heartedness here. And so here's the question. Will we be simply like admirers of him? Hey, Jesus is cool. I like Jesus. I admire Jesus. Or will we be followers of Jesus? Jesus is calling us not to admirership. Is that a word? But to followership. Jesus wants followers, not just people who think he's great. The wide road, you guys, it's full of admirers of Jesus. It's full of admirers. But he's called us to take up our cross and to follow him down the narrow road. 
the road that leads to life. The invitation to discipleship, you guys, to join Jesus on mission, it's here for all of us this morning. I don't care if you just came to Jesus. I don't care if you don't know Jesus at all or if you've followed him your whole life or you're like, I used to walk with Jesus and something happened and I'm not walking with him anymore. The invitation to discipleship is for all of you. It's not just for front row Christians. It's not not for back row Christians. Sorry, I'm not judging anybody right here. It's for all of us. You see what I'm saying? The invitation to discipleship, come and follow me. The invitation down the narrow road, the road that leads to life, you guys. I want you to walk down the road that leads to life. And I'm telling you, if you hold on to your life, you will lose it. But if you let go, if you take up your cross and follow Jesus, you will find true life. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would be the most weighty thing in our hearts, Lord. We are half-hearted creatures, so prone to settle for simple conveniences and pleasures, things that feel good in the moment but can't ultimately satisfy us, things that only lead to further destruction. I pray, God, like we need an appetite change, Lord. We need an appetite change. Would you change the appetite of our hearts, Lord? Would we, would we be able to see your value, your worth, Lord? We thank you, Father. You're, you're not a cosmic cop just trying to shock us when we do the wrong thing. You're a faithful Father, Lord. You care about us as much more than any of creation. You care about us, Lord. I pray that that love would be real. I pray right now for anyone here who's like, I don't know the love of my heavenly Father. Lord, I pray right now by your spirit, you would come, you would invade a heart, and you would do business right now. I pray that that, whoever that person is, Lord, that somehow, miraculously, right now by your spirit, they would know that you care for them. Your warnings, God, they're not like fun preventers. Your warnings, they're not, uh, they're not designed to keep us away from the good life. Quite the opposite, Lord. You warn us because you love us, Father. You warn us because you love us. God, would you give us an appetite for you? We want you to be the main thing, Lord. We want you to be our main course. We want you to be our first thing. We want to be able to say and proclaim with our mouths, we'll follow you anywhere. Would you make that true for us this morning, Lord? It's in your name we pray, amen.